You're listening to True HR, the podcast that offers up authentic conversations on all aspects of human resources for both individuals and organizations. With over 25 years of HR experience, your host, Shannon Clark Johnston, interviews established and emerging thought leaders about HR issues and trends. So sit back and get ready for conversations that are real, authentic, and true HR. In today's competitive job market, offering high-quality, cost-effective benefits can be a differentiator for companies looking to attract and retain the best talent. Sometimes, a compelling benefits package can be the deciding factor for a candidate who's considering your job offer. But what's the best way to navigate what can often be a confusing network of vendors, healthcare providers, and plan documents? Maybe you don't know where to start, or you don't even know what questions you should be asking. Beyond that, HR professionals are often tasked with a directive to lower costs while keeping employees happy with quality coverage. This can feel like a no-win situation. How do you effectively assess your current state of benefits? What are some common areas of potential cost savings? And what should you be mindful of when implementing the changes once you've decided on a path forward? I'll tackle all these questions and more on this episode with the help of my friend and colleague, Zach Peace. Zach is a Senior Vice President of Benefits Consulting at CBiz Incorporated, and we've worked together on these types of issues for more than 10 years. With Zach's expert guidance, I've saved hundreds of thousands of dollars for my employers over the years. Join us and learn how to ask the right questions to ensure you're getting the most out of your benefit plans. All right. Hello there. I am Shannon Clark Johnson, and we're here today to talk about low-hanging fruit, not just any fruit fruit specifically related to employee benefit plans and how asking the right questions can improve your benefit plans and save your company money. And I am so excited to have my very special expert guest, Zach Pace. Zach is Senior Vice President of Benefits Consulting at CBiz Incorporated. Welcome, Zach. Thanks, Shannon. So great to have you here, Zach. You know, uh, we've known each other, I mean, a while. I was actually trying to do the calculation. I I think it's been almost 15 years. I think it yeah, pretty yeah. <laughs> I think it has been too. It's been a while. We were both probably like 15, 16, I think, when we met, right? <laughs> yeah, something like that. Something like that. And uh, we met at one of the organizations I was working for. You were a benefits consultant there. And then uh, over the years, we've worked at several different companies together, brought you on uh, to work your magic. And and I have to say, you, I think of you, I don't know if I've ever told you this, but you're sort of like my benefits guru. And I, and I say this because not only have I have I never met anyone who knows so much about benefits, but what I think is your sort of your superhero ability is to take complex information, distill it down into easily understandable, actionable information for an HR professional. And so to me, you've been such a great support and help your whole team at CBiz. And, you know, I think we've done some amazing things, if I do say so myself, together and saved these different companies uh, where we've worked together really hundreds of thousands of dollars over the years. So thank you thanks, for joining thanks. me today. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. 25 years of practice also helps. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, so you've been you've been with CBiz specifically for almost 25 years. Well, I, I've only had two jobs. I started out of college working for an insurance company. I was their representative for self-funded medical, dental, and vision products life disability, flexible spending account administration. So it was, uh, yeah, I just kind of fell into it. it. And it was a 
you know, really good on, on the job training. And then one of the companies that was one of my brokers at the time was CBiz, and then they recruited me in 2002. So in June, it'll be, it, it's either June or July. Every time I like lose access to the system, IT asks me like, what month did you start at CBiz? And I always get it wrong. And eventually like, guys, I've been here 20 years. Let me back in. It is and what it is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Man, nobody really stays with the same company anymore for that amount of time. That's incredible. It's amazing. Uh, you must like what you do. I do. I've been um, fortunate to work at CBiz. It has some, brought so much stability for the last 20 years. There's been so much merges and acquisition, and we've kind of just stayed the course, which has been great. Yeah, it's it's awesome. And I, I've been so lucky to work with you. And so I, I'd love to talk today about some of the things we did and some of the kind of important questions for HR professionals to ask. But what I was thinking might be helpful before we kind of get into the meat of that is to really talk specifically about your role. And, and when you go into an organization, it's a new client or an existing client, you know, really what's your role? Uh, what do you do? What what do you typically help uh, the HR team with? What do you not do? Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Sure. Yeah. So usually um, I kind of look at our job as kind of like a firefighter. And usually we're not brought to the scene unless there's if there's no problem. Right. <laughs> so usually when we're hired, there's challenges or issues with the employee benefits program or it needs a fresh look. And so really, the we do a lot of work in the first um, four to six months in reviewing what's in place, benchmarking it against comparables, talking to the company about what's your philosophy, what, why are you doing this, why are you doing that? And you know, you'll hear a lot of things. Uh, we're not really sure why we we're doing it, doing it this way, but mm-hmm. we've done it this way for the last ten years before I joined the company. Mm-hmm. So you know, a lot of research into that, and then we're formulating um, recommendations internally with my consulting teams of what do you think we should. What about this? What about that? And then we formulate that and then bring it to the companies. Mm-hmm. And then they go through their own process and we decide, okay, what are the things we're going to get to your opening uh, introduction? What's the low hanging fruit we're going to collect in year one? And then what do we push out in two, year two, year three, year four? Um, sometimes people do it, do it all in one year. Sometimes it gets spread over um, depending on the company culture. And so, you know, I know with the two of us, I know you have larger clients and then you have some in the sort of what I would call high growth or even startup space. We've worked together on those as well. And what do you see is the difference in your role? Is there a difference in your role when you're doing the work for an existing company? Like you said, oh, we've been doing this for 10 years and you come in versus a startup or a high growth that's you know hiring like crazy. And you know what, what, is, what are some of the, the major uh, differences or is it exactly the same? Well, if you do a good job in the first year, um, you, you lay a nice foundation of we've got everything makes sense. We've got medical plan designs that make sense. We've got an employee contribution strategy you can explain in two sentences. Life and disability makes sense. Everyone has the covers they need. The voluntary menu makes sense. And so at that point, you're just doing maintenance, but also addressing as things change. If there's a cultural change or an acquisition change, there may, there may be some major projects. Um, but it's not like you're cutting down, um, you're moving into a new home, you're cutting down half an acre of trees at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, you're just maintaining what's in place um, with some new ideas it is the difference there, I would say. Mm-hmm. And, and so when you come in and you've got an HR professional who's either 
like in my case, when we first met, I had just gotten the responsibility for benefits. Uh, or maybe if someone who's just new to the organization is a, is a head of HR and, you know, looking to make some changes, as you've described, what what makes a good relationship between you, CBIZ, and that those HR contacts? You know, what have you seen work well and what what doesn't in terms of that relationship and the ease of making the changes that you need or want to change? Um, well, what's well, always helpful when senior management has empowered the human resource um, executive or director or manager to really, if, if they're going to be empowered to to look at the analysis, they should also be empowered to have a key part in the decision-making process. Mm-hmm. You know, where you don't want to get into a situation is where everyone spends a lot of work outlining, here are the goals, here are the objectives, and then here are the ultimate recommendations. And then somebody above says, well, no, that's not what I had in mind at all. Right. And they're like, well, why didn't you tell us that six months ago? Right. Right. And it could be that they even thought they were aligned, the HR right. contact and senior management, and then they, and then all of a sudden they're not, or they changed their mind. We, we've been down that road, I think, a couple of times. Yeah. I mean, you have a special skill in that, that you've always been able to navigate, okay, who was ultimate decision maker and what exactly do they want? And then what do we do? How do we work with the recommendations and ideas based upon how that ultimate decision making process works? That's a critical skill to have. Thanks. Yeah, I think it's just that I there's just too much to do, you know, and and you can't to me, it's like a waste of time, you know, to keep talking about something if you don't really know if you can you can make it happen. And so I think that's a really good point, though, for others who might be listening to, to really make sure that you have before you even start making any changes, which is what we're going to talk about today to make sure that you're fully aligned. And, and I think that can be challenging, particularly in those high growth environments, because certainly it's usually very tight in terms of budget. Uh, you know, there's so much going on. I know at a couple of the organizations we worked at together, there's super high growth. Uh, you know, there were things in place, they might be broken or not utilized. So I, I think it's a great point that you make, which is um, first be aligned. And then I think personally connect with a, a broker or consultant such as yourself to build that relationship together. And and I think for you and I, what's worked well, and I think this would carry for others, is just really good communication. And I think we both will say exactly, well, maybe you don't, (laughs) maybe you're not going to tell me, but exactly what you, what you're thinking, you know, and I'll I'll say to you, Zach, I don't get it. Or, you know, tell me why that's important, you know, to have a very, very much an open communication, I think, is really healthy and makes ultimately your plans better and can also lead to, I think, greater cost savings. Yeah, I mean, you've also been very, what's really helpful is you've always been to put put your finger on the pulse of here's here's the culture here and here's how it's different from other places work together. So things we did here, you know, aren't going to be um, of interest in this new organization or even a um, feasible really, yeah. or well, there's more risk tolerance to this organization so we can look at different things. So that, that's really important because um, the recommendations that someone from my position makes, they're not cookie cutter. Mm-hmm. They're all based upon the unique attributes of each different employer. Um, and risk tolerance is a really important one because um, everyone's risk tolerance is different and everyone thinks theirs is right, right? Which is remarkable when you, if you step back and think about that, but you see that day to day all over the place. 
And that's such a big, important part when you talk about benefits, especially when you get into different funding types um, and different arrangements. Yeah, I mean, I look at benefits as very similar to comp in the sense that it's an art and a science. You know, there's sort of facts, there's objective, you know, parts of a plan document, let's say. But then the art is, as you just mentioned, really aligning different pieces with the culture where the company's strategy is headed and so forth. And and there there are, you know, you can't even say all high growth companies are the same because they're all different, you know, on different trajectories and different points in time in their life cycle. So it's, I think that, again, the open communication, but specifically, you're right. What does it feel like at this organization? What What are people going to say if I bring this proposal related to benefits forward? Um, and, you know, sometimes I remember having conversations with you you would want to make changes. And I would say, nobody's asking me for those changes, Zach. <laughs> Leave me alone. <laughs> right. I don't want to make any changes right now. Uh, or, or hey, just heads up, Zach, there are going to be, there's going to be a push on this because, you know, either the budget's tight or, you know, the, the senior executive team is really happy with this particular benefit. They don't want to, they don't want to make any changes. But I think those things are very important to kind of give you the down low on really what's going on you know, certainly respecting confidentiality and all of that, but but just to give you a flavor of what's going on. So I think that's another really important point. So it's, you know, being aligned, number one, internally, and then communicating to you, I think, the, you know, what's really going on. So that's super yeah, helpful. I think that's an important point, especially for um, folks that are entering human resources leadership is, you know, a lot of times you'll, you'll have situations where you've got good recommendations that make sense, that fit culturally, and then there's a maybe just a committee member, maybe it's an employee, um, like a, a employee committee, and they've got a committee member that holds it up, or maybe it's a person on the board, mm-hmm. or maybe it's a CFO. And then, but the trap is you can't stop making the recommendation. You need to keep bringing it back year over year because eventually that employee is going to fall off the committee, the board member is going to fall off the board, and the CFO is going to change, and the new people are going to be like, "What have y'all been doing?" So, so right. you want to be able to produce, show that, yeah, we 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 have produced these recommendations. They were declining. That is such an excellent point. And I, and I think even in the times when maybe, you know, I was sort of half joking with you, like nobody's asking me for that. But there's certainly, to me, there's a, you know, a fiduciary responsibility that you have to, you know, make, make uh, create, change, modify plans and kind of, quote unquote, do the right thing. And so right. you're right, right, bringing those forward, even if someone gets kind of hung up. And, you know, we've been in very high high governance um, cultures, maybe lower, more risk tolerance cultures. And so you do have to take the temperature on it. But yes, I think it's sort of always coming back to what's what's the story you're trying to tell with your benefits and what's the right thing to do. So, um, no, really, really good advice. Great points. Um, so, you know, I think in terms of in terms of the work where it starts, well, where it started for me is is just asking the right questions or asking questions. Because when that was my new responsibility, I remember I didn't know what was negotiable. I didn't know, I didn't think anything was negotiable with vendors, really. I thought, here's the statement of work or here's the agreement. This is what I have to do. Uh, you know, I didn't know even who other than you, obviously, and when we connected, you would sort of help guide on who would answer the different questions. So I think it's, for me, it was a, a light bulb moment, and this is going back some years, again, not to go too far back, but 
wellness was not a huge thing. It was just becoming a thing when we started working together. And uh, I remember asking our medical provider at the time, the vendor we were using, um, based on discussions we'd had for money towards towards wellness programs. And to my shock and awe, they said yes. And and I think it was something like twenty-five or thirty thousand dollars. I can't remember exactly what it was. There were specific, you know, there was a framework around that money and what we could do with it. But I remember for me thinking, wow, like if I'd never asked, we never would have gotten that. Right. And I think that right. led to other wellness programs and certainly a path for us at that point in time um, to really build that out. So to me, it's so important to ask the right questions. And I was kind of wondering from you, do you do you agree with that? And if so, do you have any examples of where maybe that happened? Or maybe you're just so used to asking those questions, you don't even think about it. But I think HR you know, professionals are often, I don't want to say afraid, but they just don't know what they don't know, you know, in order to ask. So what are you? What are you yeah, so I mean... So you, you never really know what's negotiable and what isn't. And I, as you're, I was just thinking about when I was in middle school, um, I would, I think I raked leaves or mowed, mowed the grass for our neighbor across the street. And we were chatting one day and I mentioned, um, we were just chatting about different things. And she said, Zach, everything's negotiable. <laughs> you just have to ask. And so that kind of always stuck with me. So if you're the, the, the easiest way to figure out something is negotiable is you just say, is this negotiable? <laughs> and the person will either say yes or no. Right. And if they uh, stumble a bit on it, then it means, yes, it is. Even if they say no. Um, and another good question is always, well, is this the best you can do? Right. Um, so those are two simple questions to, to kind of flush it out quickly. Like this has happened like a couple of weeks ago. One of my larger clients was, um, and you can't, you never should negotiate with yourself, right? Some, but we always do this in our heads. So the, the, it was a, a national um, third-party administration, administrator everybody knows. They came out with their normal increase on the administrative fees. And you're thinking, well, this in, in this inflationary environment, of course they are. And everyone's like, well, we can't negotiate this act. I'm like, have we negotiated? No. Go ask them if, we, if they can just hold it flat. And so they did. And they said, sure, yeah, no problem. Wow. So that was something like, you know, thirty or forty thousand dollars. Wow. Um, wow. It's there. So it's you you always need to ask the questions. Do you think that gas prices are negotiable at this point? Should I bring you to the pump with Because <laughs> <laughs> I just yeah. filled up my car and I and That's I a good crying. point. Yeah, maybe not. <laughs> maybe not everything. Maybe not everything. Hey, you never know. Maybe you could barter something. Uh it's really it's so true though. It's a it's a great sort of life advice to just ask the right questions. I think that, I think these days the HR profession is so, so overwhelmed or just tired, you know, from, from COVID and everything um, that's been going on. And so sometimes it could be a time issue. You know, I just can't even like deal with it. Okay, fine. Here's the agreement, sign it, done. Um, but there's so much more that's, I think, I think we're often leaving on the table. Um, I think HR can be under-resourced, particularly when talking about the small to mid-sized companies. It's maybe one person running the show, maybe two. Um, but I would say, obviously, I think getting some kind of consulting service in, <clears throat> whatever that looks like, is is well worth the money. Because I think in every company that I've worked with you, uh, 
it's more than paid for yourself, like many, many times over. So, uh, you know, I just think it's, it could be a resourcing issue, but it could just be, I don't know what to ask, but regardless, I think it's a really good mindset to have to just keep asking the questions. Like the worst they can say is no, right? So right. great example. So, you know, when, when I started my journey uh, with benefits, I didn't know also where to start in terms of looking at what existed. And at the time, you know, I was in a pretty steady state organization. So it was kind of these benefit plans have been in place a long time. And I know internally I did things like look at benefit survey results. Uh, but what you helped me with uh, was obviously utilization, looking at the utilization of the existing plans, even some claims data. Do you have any guidance for HR folks who are at that point they're saying to themselves, okay, I am, I'm going to look at everything. I'm going to see what, you know, what I need to change, where they, where they should start. Well, I think a good, a good starting point is to, to benchmark the current programs. So, so there's some really good benchmarking uh, tools out there. Some of them are even free, like the Kaiser family foundation puts out an annual survey. That's chock full of all great, really nice information. That's all available for free um, as a public service. So you, you can benchmark, are my premiums competitive? Are my plan designs competitive? Are what employees pay competitive? There's other um, resources via SHRM that can let you know, like, how does even my benefits menu compare to benchmarks? Um, and then um, your your benefits program consultant ought to be also, the, the, the challenge with looking at uh, just survey data um, is that you're just all looking at averages. Uh, so your benefits consultant and broker should also be able to, to say, okay, what are some examples of what some of your clients are doing that are in our industry? Mm-hmm. And you know, without and that data can be prepared anonymously. So you can look at here's some actual real examples of how things work, which are often often much, much different than what the averages would show you. Mm-hmm. It's a great place. So that's a good place. The the employee survey is a good place. Um, the only caution there is if you ask employees a what they want, usually the expectation is that you may give it to them if they answer the survey. So that's something to consider. Yeah, um, that's true. And also, I think sometimes with employee survey results, you don't know the real why behind their responses and like what really is the issue with the plan. You know, is it the is it the region? Is it the reimbursement rate or like what what exactly is it that you don't right. like or that you do like? Um, so those are some good things. And then you, you bring up looking at utilization data, like that gets important, especially if you have a self-funded plan. And you know, before you start putting money, like we were looking at for um, a client uh, last month or so, uh, looking at a diabetes prevention program. But the question is, well, how, is this a problem that needs to be solved before you go spend uh, X amount of dollars? How many folks would are in this um, category right now? And and do we believe we could reach them and for this program to be effective? Mm-hmm. So you always want to consider those kind of things, too, if you can get your hands on that kind of data. Yeah, I think that's where the piece comes back. What is your what does your what are your demographics look like? What's the culture like? What's their appetite for these types of benefits? Because, you know, that example alone, I've worked with you at companies where the average age was, I don't know, 45, 46. And then companies where the average age was 32. Right. Those are two totally different kind of situations. So always keeping that story and those facts in mind is really important, I think, for sure. 
So that's a great, also a great point about free resources because I've noticed, and I don't know if this is me, but with COVID and everyone being, um, or a lot of people being remote, I've noticed a lot more free resources available online and everything from training to, you know, maybe survey data is, there's just so much more out there now that you really don't have to pay for. I mean, certainly there are um, paid, you know, survey programs that you can be a part of, but uh, I think that's a great point, especially if you're really running lean, uh, you know, in terms of the organization. So it's a, that's a great point. Yeah, and no one's going to make any decisions based upon looking at the da- survey data. It's just, it's help- helpful to know where you stand so then you can kind of narrow your focus. Yeah. Um, and if you need to buy, to buy a report or, and CBIS buys dozens of different reports every year. So we have all that data. Um, and so depending on the consultant or broker you're working with, they probably do as well. But the, the free data is out there just to figure out just to give you a barometer if you need it. Mm-hmm, for sure. So so let's talk a little bit about where you can look for cost savings. And I, I know we already talked about the broker, advisor, consultant, um, you know, role. I My personal feeling is that a lot of folks aren't taking advantage. You know, I've come into companies before where there is an existing consultant and nobody knows his or her name. <clears throat> and... Nobody really knows that they should be getting information from this person on a regular basis. So I really, if you do have an existing consultant arrangement for me, uh, because it's such a huge support, I I think you need to check in with that, um, that individual, that organization. And from a practical standpoint, what would you say that person should be doing? Like, for example, I know you've helped tremendously with open enrollment. I mean, down to creating our benefits booklet for open enrollment, right? So so when you when someone looks at that relationship, are there any red flags or on a positive note, things that if you see are happening should be happening? Any guidance there on what, what you should really be looking for to make sure that that relationship is where it needs to be? Yeah, I think, I mean, one piece of advice for someone that's starting new in an organization is, is just to cut to the chase and say, can I see your scope of services and can I see your compensation? Um, now, if, you're, if the employer is paying the, the broker consultant directly, that you should know what the compensation is. If they're paying it indirectly um, and there's pros and cons in doing that, um, that should be disclosed. And actually, it's, it's required to be disclosed under a new congressional law. And, you, um, and when you say but, indirectly, Zach, you mean as a percentage of what they're paying uh, for? Yeah, the so it's, it's your the where the, there's commissions built into the, the premiums, either on a percentage or a per employee per month basis. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the broker's receiving the compensation directly from the carrier, essentially. Um, so you wanna identify all that and you wanna identify what the scope of services is and that, that will be provided. And then there won't be, and then if there's certain services that you're looking for that there aren't being provided, you can ask about those. If there's certain things that are provided that you don't really need, you can um, you can ask about those as well. Um, you know, just as you would deal with any other type of consultant um, or professional, what, what's the scope of services? How much does it cost? Yeah, and I think you can tell a lot by their response. <laughs> you know, my experience has, has always been interesting when you know you come into a new organization or a new role, and you start asking those questions. You know, you may get really upfront answers, and that's great. And then you you may have to send a few emails and have a few phone calls to actually get that. But it's a good point. I mean, you know, somewhere there should be a contract. Although I have to tell you, I've been 
I've been in at least one organization where there was no contract that anyone could find. So um, I think then it's probably next level. Let's sit down and talk about what it is, what it is you're doing or what you're going to do going forward for us. And so, again, I, I don't know that that's hard money necessarily, but it's to me it's soft money that you might be leaving – you know, this person or entity that could do a lot more that may not be doing it. So to me, that's right. Like, right. Know. So that's, I mean, that's another trap that someone from my, in my chair can fall into, right. Which you need to avoid, which is if, if an organization isn't taking advantage of your full scope of services, but you're getting paid for the full scope of services, don't just never bring it up again. Right. You better document every year. Like we could do all these other things, but we just want to, to document, and we'd like you to sign off that that you're not interested in this, right? To show that right? you're doing your job, or <laughs> right. you're gonna, or like Shannon's gonna come in and say, like, seriously, right? Like you're you're getting all this money for stuff you're not doing, yeah, yeah. Um, so you want to document that, and and there can be reasons for that, um, but you never want to get complacent and figure, and but like we were mentioning before on on the recommendations because of a certain board member. You need to keep bringing these things back up of um, these are services we think could help you right. um, in your organization. Can, can we talk about this again? Yeah. And I think there were times just to, on that note that we were recommending some really cool things that didn't get didn't get approved either right away or ever, you know, um, for whatever reason. And so I would say. Don't take it personally. <laughs> you know, like you you're right. You have to just keep bringing it back. Because sometimes, um, you know, as an HR professional, I would just get so frustrated. I like I know this is the right thing uh, for this organization, but I think to your point, just keep bringing it back. Just keep you know reexamining and also you know updating yourself on okay, is the strategy of the company still heading in the same way? you know, the same direction you thought it was and is the makeup still the same? We still hiring at the same rate and those kinds of things. So, um, but, but yeah, same, same concept there. Uh, all right. So let's talk about where the low hanging fruit is exactly. So you, you're, you're in HR, you get this responsibility, you call Zach immediately, number one. Uh, number two, you do your due diligence. You look at survey data, you look at all the, 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 Employee survey data, you look at the surveys that you've mentioned before, and now you want to really analyze where can I, number one, you know, make sure the, the plans are still high quality or improve the quality, uh, and number two, save money. Where do you go first? Well, it, it depends. I mean, I think Ugh, sometimes are you a the lawyer? hanging fruit <laughs> is. What you are you a lawyer, Zach? It depends. <laughs> well, I'm just thinking about different examples, but um Sometimes there's sometimes no one's negotiated like the fully insured renewal in years. Do you remember that one? Right. Where you you had just come into the organization. Now these would be an okay example to bring up. I mean, I, the renewal increase was ten percent, and by the time we were done with it, it was a fifteen percent reduction off of current with a multi-year rate guarantee. Right. I mean that that's a rarity, but if no one's ever negotiated, and you'll see this sometimes. In the high growth companies where you go from the small group environment under easily under 50 in most states where it isn't negotiable because it's all filed with the, the um, with the individual states within the insurance within the um, insurance commissioner's office in the different state capitals. And then you get a large group where it's all negotiable, but maybe the current broker doesn't have expertise in that. And they're thinking, well, you have to accept the renewal. And to your point, you don't. Right. Um 
that's an easy place. And another place is the employee contribution strategy. Um, we were just uh, chatting with prospective employer last week. And you look at how some of the, the contribution strategies are set up, especially when they've introduced a high deductible health plan, um, where really from an incentive standpoint, they're giving thousands of dollars more to folks to stay in the PPO plan. Mm-hmm. So where it's not aligned up, like, well, yeah, we're interested in my, we got this new plan. We're trying to migrate uh, enrollment into the lower cost plan. And then, well, then why are you giving someone like $6,000 more to stay in the old plan? Um, right. And those are things that needs to be just need to be looked at. Yeah, I think you 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 said it so well when you say it. You know, it has to tell a story, and that was one of my my big learning points in working with you as well. You know, what is this? What is this saying? And what behavior is it driving? Right. And so, you know, I think we worked together on an organization that wanted to subsidize a certain percentage, but it was was not equal across the plans which is kind of getting into a really weird territory of, you know, if it's if you're subsidizing more, let's say, of, of the the higher cost or the single people or the, you know, whatever it may be, like you have to really what what is the story that I want to tell and I love that because I think that's true of the of of the entire analysis. But particularly with the contributions and what you're trying to drive. Right? Right. I mean, it it's a it's a prevailing ethos that it's hard to st- stamp out, which is we should be equitable based upon percentage of premium paid. Mm-hmm. Like, it, like just to make a round example, if you say well, we're going to pay ninety percent of all of the plan premiums, well, if you do that and you offer two or three plans, that means you're providing you're making an incentive for people to be in the most expensive plan because they get the most benefits compensation. We really should. In, in most all cases, there should be equity um, based upon actual dollars given. Right. And I think driving, you know, off, I mean, we, we both know that the perception is the most expensive plan is the best plan, right? That's, I mean, that's just what employees right, right. think. And sometimes that's not the case, depending on the individual, his or her needs, right? Uh, do you see more specialists? Do you go to the doctor a lot? You know, what's your personal history? And so I think that education is super important. Uh, and also depends on, you know, we had a fantastic uh, plan at one of the organizations we worked for. It was um, all in network, but the network was amazing. And so, you know, if you didn't go to the doctor a lot and you were in a, that situation, that was such a better plan for you because you weren't paying out of pocket, you know, for a lot of a lot of copays. So, um, yeah, I really I really think that keeping that in mind in terms of, you know, What's the story you want to tell along with the right education when you do make the changes is really, really important. What about self-funding? Give me your thoughts on that, because I know people jump to that, too. They go, oh, we're going to save a ton of money, right, because we're going to self-fund. We, we need to get to self-funding. We have to get to self-funding. So what are your thoughts when you're looking or debating whether or not you should uh, self-fund and what what plans are the best? Yeah, I think let's start with like maybe the overlooked plans. Um, Dental is one. So if you have a, a normative dental plan and it's, and it's employer sponsored and either it's a, anywhere from 100% employer paid to maybe 50% employer paid when the employer is contributing a percentage of the premiums, usually those dental plans have fairly low annual maximums, especially when you, you compare it to a medical plan with no annual maximum. So someone could get a million dollar benefit in a given year and dental 
the, the median annual maximum is still $1,500, which is only about $100 a month. So it's not a whole lot of benefit. Um, and essentially, it's not really even insurance. It's just a big spending account. Um, and the reason why there's so many fully insured dental options out there is because it's so profitable. Right. 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 I mean, you wouldn't pay something like if the dental premium is like $30 a month. So it's $360 a year. You wouldn't normally pay $360 of, insur- of insurance to insure a risk of $1,500, right? Well, the risk so isn't that, that high, right? It's not like well, self-insuring your medical plan. Right. So essentially, you've got built-in stop loss in the annual mo- in the annual maximum. So it's a pretty easy benefit to self-fund. Um, and there's usually a, a ton of, of cost savings that you can demonstrate quickly just by looking back at what have we paid in the last um, three or four years in premiums versus what we paid, what our claims were, plus what a reasonable administrative fee would have been. So you've seen that at several organizations. Yeah, I remember thinking that was such a, it's it's really, honestly, it didn't really cross my mind. And I was like, duh, (laughs) that's really low risk. And like you said, when you look back on your claims, you can kind of predict where it's going to go. And I think without blinking an eye, I want to say, correct me if I'm wrong, if you remember, it was was something like $50,000 worth of savings between $30,000 and $50,000 in the first year when we did that. Yeah. And I thought, wow, that was like, not even, didn't even occur to me. Uh, Yeah. And with no, um, Impact to the employees at all. Same right, network. Right. Pay maybe they get a reduction in what they pay. And you know, some employers they're able to do this and like really increase the take the save a portion of the savings and really increase the benefit. Yeah. For the employees too. Yeah, I love that. Uh, one last area, and I know it's a big one, but maybe if you throw out a few popular uh, changes that you've made or recommended over the years. We did some work in modest, sort of what I would call modest plan design changes, meaning there weren't huge, you know, it wasn't a huge impact to folks. And I think what we did on several occasions was to do a few of these that added up to a decent savings, uh, you know, co-pays and, and such. What, where would you look there um, that would have, you know, let's say minimal impact, minimal negative impact um, on the employees? As far as plan design? Yeah. Yeah. If you wanted to look for a savings. I think one place you can look at is how much in premium you're paying for out-of-network benefits. Um, what we're seeing is um, a, lo- a lot of plans have out-of-network benefits with deductibles that you're never going to get through. Mm-hmm. You might, might have a, a deductible of like 4000 single, 8000 family and out-of-pocket maximums into the 20s thousands of dollars and and no one's ever going to get to these deductible levels out of pocket i mean out of network in a normative situation um and now with the congressional no surprises act there's an additional level of protection um to consumers so that's something to look at like if you're paying an extra two percent in premium for a benefit that no one is really going to use and you can pull reporting on that um, that that would be one place to look for sure on plan design. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know we've we've had several conversations about different benefits when you look at the utilization. Of course, it's always fun when it comes back that like your top 
to senior management members utilize this benefit that you want to get rid of, right? Uh, but really looking at not just the numbers, but who's using it, and is there another way they can get the services that they need within the the plan structure as it exists? Like maybe they just don't know um, that there's another outlet for it. So I think utilization is is really really important. Uh, I think most most com- well, I shouldn't say that. You you would know better than me. High deductible health plans are really common right now. They are. So mm-hmm. do you see still a lot of companies looking to add them or is it so much the norm now that that's not really, you know, an area of, of particular savings because most people have them? Yeah, well, certainly companies that, that, that don't have them usually need to justify to 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 um, management or their board of why they don't. Um, and, and there can be good reasons for that mm-hmm. for different organizations. Um, but so that's something we, we're usually doing annually of let's model out again, what introducing a high health plan would look like so they can make another decision. But you're right. Most companies have at least put that plan in place. Um, now, a lot of them, like going back to our earlier conversation, they're still incentivizing everyone not to go into the plan because they're providing so much more compensation to stay with the old plan. Right. So that needs to be reviewed. Another thing um, on the high health plans is a, about looking at different survey data, about half of employers are contributing to the HSA. Um, and of course, every dollar they, the employer puts in the HSA is one less dollar they can use to contribute to the premium. Um, and one thing I think we're going to see um, develop more and more over the years here is it's not really true that everyone's retiring by the age, age of 65 anymore. Um, and generally, um, and there's some exceptions to this, you know, once you become Medicare eligible, um, you're not eligible to, to receive HSA contributions anymore unless you're um, resourceful enough to figure out how to waive Part A, which isn't all that easy. Um, and so all that compensation that employer is giving into the HSA contribution, those, those more tenured employees are not eligible for. Mm-hmm. So I think there's going to be a more migration over the years of, of dollars going out of the employer contribution to the HSA and reducing what employees actually pay for that plan, which I think is going to help everyone. Um, and certainly from a recruiting standpoint, I think it's always difficult to say, yeah, well, you're, you're paying more than for this plan that you are to current employer, but we give you this money to the HSA. Let me show you how that you're going to break even or come out ahead. I think it's easier to say, yeah, we charge $25 less than what you're paying now. Right, right. It's an communication. Well, and you led me right where I wanted to go to kind of close this out and, and talk a little bit about uh, what are some outdated benefits or things that you're seeing kind of slowly go away? You kind of mentioned sort of a little change there based on the, the makeup of the population. And what do you see as kind of next level? So, you know, and, and I guess, you know, things that are going away could even be a cost savings. Like people aren't aren't using these anymore. You're just not seeing them. And then where do you think the money will be spent kind of going forward? Right. So, I mean, staying with the high equity health plan conversation, for our clients that, that have set up a equitable um, employee contribution methodology, naturally, the, a lot of that enrollment goes to the high equity health plan. And, and then... One of the legacies you have is the flexible spending account administration and those accounts for, for the folks that stayed on the PPO. But you get down to this, you're like, wait a minute, we only have like 25 people left in the only 25 people left in the PPO. 
And there's only like maybe 30 people in the company that are still eligible for the FSA. Does this make sense to keep given all? Um, and Congress keeps throwing more complexities every year at FSAs, it seemed like. Mm-hmm. And we saw this during the pandemic. I think their, their heart was in the right place, but it just makes it more and more complex. So we have seen more and more of our clients just dropping the flexible spending account benefit. Maybe they'll keep the dependent care. Okay. But keeping, but eliminating the medical just to make it less confusing. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's one. Another is um, accidental death and dismemberment coverage, which we kind of take for granted. Like, well, this is part of the group life, but it doesn't have it doesn't have to be. And um, you know, if if the AD and D premium is like ten or twenty percent of the overall spend. A question is becoming up more and more. Is it does anyone really even know about this? And would or would the employees rather have like a ten percent increase in their group life benefit? Right. Um, so that that's one that's one we've been looking at um, quite a bit. The another that I, you still see hanging on from legacy companies is like the opt out credit, where if you if you waive the health plan, you'll get a hundred extra hundred dollars per month. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's some serious um, obstacles that not all employers know about that regarding what Treasury has said about that. If you need to look at what the Affordable Care Act and employer share responsibility affordability penalties are and how that works. And how, a lot of times that $100 can count towards a calculation. Mm-hmm. So so those three things we're seeing uh, ebb quite a bit. And how about um, next level? I, I know that you know mental health is a big uh, topic in HR circles. Are you seeing any benefits in that area, or or something else that you're seeing that is kind of new? That that's that's a great one, and I think um, probably the best advice I have is instead of chasing like a new product or a new benefit, what really needs to be done is, is sit down with your health plan, look at the plan at the plan documents, and well, to your point, look at mental health and say, is this mental health benefit? Is this what I want? Right. Because if it's especially if it's a self-funded plan that, that may have been drafted 10 or 15 years ago, and no, it's not what you want. Um, and we've had the mental health parity regs now for um really longer than I've been in the business, but there have there's a lot more scrutiny under on it now and under the current administration and looking a lot more at also the the clinical parity mm-hmm. between the medical side and the mental health side. So you want to spend some time with that. And we, we're spending a lot of time with that with our clients right now. Um, it is the mental health, is the behavioral health benefits in the health plan, what we want. Right. And is it compliant? Right. Um, so that's what I would encourage folks to look. There's a lot of other like new benefits. And it's always important to remember in our industry, how he- heavily regulated it is and how hard it is to have a new concept put in place that's compliant. So it's always really important like scratch the surface on anything new and say, first of all, is this really new or is it just like a new little package around it? And then two, is it compliant? Mm-hmm. And that's and that's where your your um, attorney, that's where your benefits consultant can really help you. Yeah, I know that even happened really with wellness. You know, when we started to give reductions for folks participating and then, then a lot of compliance regulations came out around that, right? And was it discriminatory and so forth. So that, you know, that was a journey. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, well, last question, and then we'll we'll wrap up. Uh, I know there's so many folks now working remotely. 
right? Or hybrid, um, you know, working in different states that maybe a company never had employees in before. How do you see this this great resignation movement, the movement of employees working from wherever, impacting benefits? Well, the the biggest impact is all the state regulations that employers didn't have to deal with before. Right. So, like one of my uh, clients went from having something like employees in five states to 35 or 40 within six months. Um, and like with, sitting in New Jersey, you're like, uh, you're an expert on the New Jersey paid family leave, the disability. But if you're sitting in Arkansas in HR, you may not be. Um, and we've got so many states now that have um, confusing and complex regulations on everything from disability leave to paid family leave to sick leave to 1095C requirements. Now we have long-term care um, that may or may not happen in Washington state. We've got Illinois, we're doing this essential health benefit um, notification. So that that's really what's really changed is we're spending a ton of time on that as our employers are saying, yeah, you can go work anywhere. Um, but you go into these, um, these states and you have to be very careful uh, what those regulations are and how to be compliant. Um, and the challenge is your benefits, in most cases, your benefits consultant and broker are not going to be notified when you go into a new state automatically. You, you, you're going to need to reach out and let them know. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's such a good point. And it's, it's, I think it's just become more and more relevant. You know, you're right. I mean, I've been in New Jersey for, I don't know, almost 25 years now in HR. And I think the other day someone asked me about disability laws in Arizona. <laughs> I have no idea. Right. Uh, you know, and then, you know, you've got the employees that often are, are you know, moving and um, maybe not even giving a lot of notice because they don't they don't realize that it impacts you know, other things. And um, yeah, you're right. The expertise is particularly around disability and leaves is so critical. So uh, excellent, excellent point. Well, Zach, this has been, as always, uh, super fun to chat with you. I think uh, this is really going to be um, helpful and hopefully enlightening to some folks in HR who might be looking at their benefit plans and kind of don't know where to start. So thank you so much uh, for joining me for this True HR podcast, episode two. I know we'll be talking soon because there's constant change and I need I need advice. And you're you're the guy, the benefits guru. We need to get you a sign. <laughs> Thanks, Shane. It's been my pleasure. All right, Zach. Thanks so much. Well, that does it for another episode of True HR. Thanks for joining us. If you're interested in learning more from True HR, head over to our website at true-hr.com, where you can sign up to receive free tools and resources and learn more about our coaching and consulting services. 